there were like three different fish species that the sea lions fed on that were also of interest to humans that humans want more of. Pull the sea lions out or drastically reduce their numbers. And about half the time, those fish species, their populations would increase. But guess what? Half the time, they went down because of all the indirect interactions because it's not just the sea lions and the fish and the humans there's all of these other players and there's all these other pathways and all these loops and all these indirect effects and because of all of that complexity in the network it was definitely not a sure thing that removing this other predator that is a competitor to humans was going to actually have the effect that humans want Through time, the fossil record shows a remarkable diversity of forms. Creatures unfamiliar to today's Earth, suggesting ecosystems alien enough to challenge any sense of continuity. But reconstructed trophic networks, maps of who's eating whom, reveal a hidden order that has been conserved since the first complex animals of half a billion years ago. These network models offer scientists an armature on which to hang new unifying theories of ecology, a way to answer questions about how energy moves through living systems, how evolution keeps producing creatures to refill specific niches, how mass extinctions happen, what minimal viable ecosystems are and why. Untangling this deep structure of food webs may also shed light on technology and economics and guide interventions to ensure sustainability in agriculture, conservation efforts, even venture capital investment. Welcome to Complexity, official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-reaching conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists, developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is Jennifer Dunn, SFI's Vice President for Science and Fellow at the Ecological Society of America. Dunn got her PhD in Energy and Resources from UC Berkeley, joined SFI's faculty in 2007, and sits on the advisory board for Nautilus Magazine. In this second half of a two-part conversation, we discuss her work on reconstructing ancient food webs and the implications of this research for our understanding of ecologies, extinctions, sustainability, and technological innovation. So there is something really deep and general and profound here that I want to put a pin in mm -hmm. uh, and circle back around to, because historian William Irwin Thompson, who is associated with various SFI professors over the years through the Lindisfarne Association, was the one who introduced me to the idea that you know, we destroy forests in order to create libraries and that Amazon.com is in some way 
like a transubstantiation of the Amazon, you know. And so, I mean, looking up in your office at this article on the dwindling web and this question of can we actually reconstruct this to show that a technological ecosystem is literally replacing biological trophic networks. Let's put a pin in that. In order to get into that depth, it's important to go into your more paleontological work Mm -hmm. and the conservation of the the structure of these trophic networks over millions of years. That Mm -hmm. Your research suggests that something really consistent and universal at like a thermodynamics kind of level is going on here. So I'd love to hear you talk about the work that you did with the Smithsonian on the reconstruction of the Burgess Shale. Mm -hmm. There's a great line from the uh, piece that you and Justin Yackel wrote for American Scientist saying, reconstructing the feeding interactions of the Burgess Shale is no easy task, particularly with species whose strange morphologies inspire names such as Anomalocaris and Hallucigenia. I mean, these are bizarre organisms. How on earth did you actually put together a trophic network that was confident, that you were confident mm-hmm. enough about to yeah. actually draw these these associations? Right. Yeah, so that's really, really fun, fabulous work also. And I obviously, over the last 10 or 15 years of my career, I've become obviously fascinated with deep time both on human time scales and on geologic time scales. And so the, there's actually a really good Santa Fe Institute story behind uh, the Burgess Shale work and the first um, paleo food web work that I was involved with. And uh, I was uh, at SFI as a young postdoc in the early 2000s, and I gave a talk on my early food web work. And some person I didn't know sat down next to me at lunch. He had been at my talk, and without much preamble, he said, so do you think that we could do this for really ancient ecosystems? And I said, you know, how old? And <laughs> and he said, you know, 500 million years, give or take. <laughs> and I laughed. And, uh, and that was the start of the paleobiology food web work. Um, that person was um, Doug Irwin, who uh, is a very well-known um, paleobiologist at the Smithsonian. He's also the curator of the Burgess Shale Collection at the Smithsonian. And so he and I basically just kind of brainstormed about, could we do this kind of stuff for really old systems? And how would we do that? What would it look like? The very questions you ask. So we brought together a group of, um, of paleobiologists we thought uh, might be friendly to this idea and might potentially have the right kinds of data and some food web people and had an ongoing working group. And one of the first things that we did as a group, and this is, this is sort of similar to what the first thing my humans in food webs or humans in ecological networks group did the humans in food webs or humans uh, in ecological networks people had to figure out what are the main categories of use and interaction with other species what the paleo people had to figure out was what are the different lines of inference that can be used to hypothesize a feeding link Mm. between taxa that are half a billion years old or older or you know or less and for some of the data sets we were looking at and um like how do you know that anomalocaris is feeding on trilobites you know you can't watch it can't see it 
can't observe it, can't do a feeding trial, can't do, you know, can't extract gut contents. It's unscientific to just assume from the palps on that thing that it's... Well, no, so that's, it's yeah. not, that's not, uns- that's a piece okay. of, that's a piece of the science. So, um, I like to joke that I locked all the paleobiologists into our medium conference room and, <laughs> and I told them they wouldn't get any green chili or margaritas until they came up with <laughs> a set of <laughs> inferences. So they did. We did. So basically, there's a lot known about the morphology and even the phylogeny, the kind of evolutionary history of organisms and fossil assemblages. And in the case of uh, certain fossil assemblages, like uh, the Burgess Shale, they're they're called Lagerstaten. Yeah. Um, so they are very well-preserved fossil assemblages. They're very unusual, so these are not normal, but it's like a sudden event, like the whole ecosystem got smothered, or it all died all at once for different kinds of reasons. Yeah, Sonhof and limestone, Laoning in China, like that, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, so and just some kind of event or confluence of events means that all of the species, including the soft-bodied bits, um, get preserved very faithfully in the fossil record altogether. Most of the time, you only get like the hard shelly bony bits that get preserved but that's only a piece of the ecosystem but in the case of the burgess shale and some of the other cambrian shales and some and others throughout time there have been this exquisite preservation from primary producers all the way up to you know uh predators and parasites and things so you know species you know what all the species all the possible pairs are you know how do you decide who's actually eating whom so Every feeding link is a hypothesis. In the fossil record, every link is a hypothesis because you don't know it for sure, for sure, Mm. for sure. (laughs) So it's a hypothesis. But it's annotated with one or more lines of inference. The best line of inference, actually, is gut contents. So there actually are fossilized gut contents. And uh, the experts know how to distinguish gut contents from things that just died on top of each other. Right. That actually can be distinguished. Or pregnancy, which is or, another thing. That, right, yeah. yeah. But finding fossilized gut contents is not very frequent. <laughs> <laughs> and you occasionally actually get things fossilized in the moment of feeding, like where mm. a big fish has its mouth around a little fish. And there's examples of that. Um, again, not very common. The smoking gun. But there's many other lines of evidence. So the functional morphology of the organism tells you a lot about what it can and can't eat. So that's where you get to like the palps or what are the teeth like? Mm-hmm. The teeth will tell you something about the kinds of things it could and could not eat. Um, there's also bite marks. So a lot of things end up with bite marks that get preserved when they die. So, for example, one of the things, one of the reasons Anomalocaris or Anomalocaris, I never could get a paleobiologist to commit to one of those two pronunciations. Well, it's, it's etymologically, <laughs> it's Caris, right? right? But then you have like Archaeopteryx with the P is pronounced. So yeah, whatever. so, and, yeah. Anomalocaris, Anomalocaris. Anyway, they feed on trilobites in our food web. A big part of why we hypothesize, that's the royal we, um, Hypothesize that they feed on trilobites because many trilobites have been found with tooth marks that match the anomalocaris mouth parts and teeth. That's a pretty confident hypothesis. Yeah, so many things are fairly confident, but so but you you may have four. I mean, and then there's the body size tells you something about what you can and can't eat or what you can and cannot eat to you. So there's like ten or twelve of these kind of different, and we number them one through twelve or whatever. And then so every every link has like one or more lines of evidence. You know, it's like mouth part, body size, you know, gut content, 
uh, assigned to it. And then what we do is we assign a certainty level to every link. How certain are we that this link actually happened? And we do that, and we have a very simple way of doing that. Certain things are high certainty in and of themselves. Got contents are high certainty. But then if something only has one line of evidence, you know, then we say that's, that's low certainty. If it has two or, you know, two or more lines of evidence, or no, two lines of evidence, then it's medium certainty. And then if it's three or more got contents, then it's high certainty. Because, and that's important to do. I mean, you have to have some way of dealing with uncertainty. And this is certainly not the only way you can deal with uncertainty in the fossil record and constructing a food web. There's other people who do it in a different kind of way, um, using kind of more probabilistic statistics. They are actually tend to work with uh, more impoverished kinds of data than what we were working with. So in any case, out of this eventually pops a food web or multiple food webs because we looked at a couple of systems. And, and then where every link is a hypothesis with one or more lines of inference and a certainty level assigned to it, then we can start to do the questions of like, okay, the simplest question is, is this organized differently or similarly to modern food webs? And the, the role of the certainty assignment allows us to do a sensitivity analysis. So we can look at the structure of that food web with all of the links included, but then we can systematically knock out links. We can knock out low certainty links. We can knock out random links. And we can see how much does that change, if at all, our understanding of the structure. I mean, eventually it will, but you can actually monkey with it quite a bit before you change your final conclusion. But it, it gives us a way to deal with the uncertainty which is really important when you're working with that kind of data. And um, what we found, basically, long story short, is that these Cambrian food webs, the Burgess Shale and the Chengcheng Shale food webs, are structured fundamentally similarly to modern food webs, regardless of the habitat. So they, so modern, modern food webs, regardless of habitat, are structured similarly. And these more than a half a billion-year-old food webs are also structured similarly. And it's non-random structure. And so that suggests that, you know, and, and again, that's, and you mentioned this at the beginning, you know, that's in spite of the fact that many of the species in the Cambrian or in the Burgess Shale, they don't have any modern descendants. They had really crazy body plans that don't exist anymore. And they, they're all like these marine creatures. And so a lot of them kind of were evolutionary dead ends. I mean, that's not a great term, but it just, you know. <laughs> everything eventually becomes an evolutionary dead end. But um but yeah, but often had just body plans that were never seen again. So they're they couldn't be more different in terms of multicellular organisms to modern creatures. But yet they're still coming together in food webs in fundamentally similar kinds of ways. I mean that suggests to me that, you know, it's not, you know, food web structure is not something that evolved. It didn't evolve over time from the Cambrian to now. There's other things that are constraining it to be like that. And so, and we don't really know that yet. That's still an open question. Like, I'm sure it has something to do with thermodynamic constraints of how you uh, distribute resources in a complex network. It could have something to do with the way that different kinds of necessary nutrients and chemicals balance across a whole system. I mean, it could have something to do with many things. And I, that's an open frontier of research, frankly. Mm, so you're not as confident as I am and here in my armchair to speculate that this has kind of strong implications for astrobiological research, for example. You know, that, that we're not necessarily going to observe the same kind of trophic networks in 
a methane based ecosystem. Oh, I actually think we probably would. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, because I don't think it's about evolving a structure, mm-hmm. because I think it's about other kinds of constraints. It, it depends on the nature of those constraints. I mean, it, it would be really, I've often wanted to, to con- be able to construct really detailed food webs for like chemoautotrophic based food webs. I haven't gotten that data or I don't have access to it yet. Maybe someone out there is putting that together. You're um, working on hydrothermal vents and you're yes. listening to this conversation. <laughs> Who are you? Email us. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, my base hypothesis at this point, because of the work I've done will always be that I expect the structure to be similar. And if it deviates from that, then there's going to be some interesting kind of uh, things to unpack to understand and explain what the differences are. So, well, so let's talk a little bit about this structure that's conserved. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that again, that there is a fixedness in the pattern of species interactions independent of species identity, habitat, and time. Mm -hmm. You mentioned also in a a piece that you wrote for the the Layman et al. 2015 article that, um, Food webs, they're, they're very similar to small world networks, meaning short path lengths between all of the different nodes, but that they're not scale free. No, I mean, the, I mean, some of the features that we tend to see um, or that we see in food webs, I already mentioned one actually in talking about humans, but that was a long time ago. So, mm. so you think of a food web as the, all the species that co-occur in a particular habitat. So over some kind of space and time, you kind of integrate across that. You know, if species never see each other, you know, then they aren't really a part of the same food web. They don't have the opportunity to feed on each other. In any case, within the food web, uh, food webs that we've looked at from across time and space and habitat and everything else, you know, one very strong pattern is that most things are fairly specialized in what they feed on. So they feed on, a, you know, a fairly small fraction of the species that are available to them in the food web. But then you have this fairly long tail um, of the distribution where a few things are very highly generalized in what they feed on. And so in the systems we've looked at so far, for example, humans have always been highly generalized. You know, I don't think that'll necessarily always be the case for humans, but so far that's what we've seen. And that pattern is not a scale-free pattern. It's not a power law. You know, power law has kind of exploded in popularity, but we're kind of over over applied to everything for a long time and um the world's more interesting and complicated than that um (laughs) but um in the case of food webs um, they tend to in most cases they tend to be more of an exponential distribution so it's a skewed distribution still instead of like the data following a line on a log log plot like they would if it was a power law they follow a line on a log linear plot um so skewed but not as highly skewed as a power law um so Many, many specialists, a few generalists um, in an exponential kind of way. You know, there are some food webs that skew more towards a uniform distribution, and there's some that skew more towards a power law distribution. But, you know, that's you can do a you can do a scale collapse where you show data from a bunch of different food webs collapsing onto a universal curve. That's a nice little trick from statistical physics that's very handy for trying to find generalities or universalities across different different kinds of data sets but there there's actually some more commonalities beyond that kind of exponential type of distribution they're a little hard to describe in simple language but i mean you know short version is you know there's some very simple models of network structure and in particular a food web structure 
that basically they assume that exponential type distribution, but then they place some other constraints on how the how the nodes, how the species are linked together. And one of those, the, the niche model for food webs, actually does a really good job of describing kind of various kinds of properties of, of empirical food webs. And, and, you know, we use that model actually as a way to compare across food webs because you can't just, you have to take into account network structure changes systematically with the size of the network and also with how many links are in the network. And this is actually a really, really important point <laughs> because, you know, too you'll see or hear too often like someone comparing a small food web and its properties, like how many omnivores are there, or how many top predators are there, or what's the average trophic level. And then they'll compare this small food web to this much bigger, more detailed food web. And they'll go, look, see, they, they have different average trophic levels or they have different percentages of omnivores. So they're different. But actually, the big one is just a big version of the small one. Once you scale up, that's actually, you would expect it to have a greater percentage of omnivores or a higher mean trophic level. So this using kind of null models or models like the niche model, which is a little bit more than a null model, that allows us to kind of to understand how food webs of different sizes, how they compare to each other um, and do it in a more rigorous way. And this is something I had a lot of conversations about um, with my network theory and statistical physics colleagues when I first came to SFI and who continue to acknowledge that this is indeed a very hard problem, um, mm. how you rigorously and systematically compare the structure of different size networks. And it's something that I grapple with all the time in food web research. So. One of the things that comes up in this comparative analysis of trophic networks is that food webs with lower connectance may be more sensitive to species extinctions. And, you know, you've done, uh, you published numerous papers on looking at networks as they are thinned out mm -hmm. before a mass extinction, yeah. thinning the network yeah. and, and making it sort of more vulnerable to perturbances. Right. Yeah. So I can, yeah. So some of my work and my, some of my very earliest work and my most well-cited work is actually about looking at using food webs to look at the robustness of ecological networks um, or ecosystems to species loss, but doing it from the lens of species in an ecosystem are interconnected through their interactions feeding interaction being a very important one. And as you lose species, you're losing all the links to them also and all the links from them to other species. So they're, it's not just them, you know, they're embedded within a set of feeding interactions. And those feeding interactions are embedded within a broader network of feeding interactions. So um, what I've done and colleagues of mine have done, I mean, a fairly simple thing, but it's just to do little simulations because you can't really do it in the real world you can do it in really small microcosms but um but you can't go out into the real world and just you know pull a species out of it and well make it go extinct maybe yeah. researchers in a hundred years will be able to right. look at our middens and, well yeah, yeah and i mean you can do yeah you can kind of look back and try to recreate the extinction sequence and people are starting to do some of that but yeah, you can start plucking species out. You can do it in a different ways. You can um, do them randomly. You can pick the very highly connected species, the hubs. You can p pick low connected species. But you start thinning. You start thinning the food web out, and um, and 
you basically ask me a question, you'll get a secondary extinction just looking at network structure if something loses all of its potential prey items. And so that's when you get a secondary extinction. And then if something depends on that, you know, then if that goes extinct, then you can get a cascading extinction. One of the things we found is, and this is no big surprise now, you know, but a densely connected network is going to be more robust. I mean, it's got more, it's got more redundancy. It's got more pathways. So, you know, things tend to have more than one option or more than two options. And so it takes a while before you knock out all of the prey of any particular species. But as you thin and thin webs of species and the links attached to them, you know, they become less and less robust to further disruption. In the simulations we did using real data sets, you could actually knock out about 20% of the species before you got significant secondary extinctions. But then once you start getting the secondary extinctions, it proceeds very rapidly. You start getting cascading extinctions. So you go from like, you can lose species, lose species, lose species, and then all of a sudden you really start losing, you start getting these cascades. And the, uh, I was involved in a study of the Adriatic Sea and different kind of ecological indicators through time for the Adriatic Sea region. So this was a human impacts on ecosystem kind of paper um, that I did not, I was a minor co-author on, but there was a food web and robustness part of it. So they looked at um, Adriatic Sea food webs across tens of thousands of years of human habitation. And basically it's not until the last um, 200 years that you really see relative abundance of many species going way down and other kind of environmental indicators becoming worse. And they also put together simple food webs and showed a big change from 200, like you don't see the food web fundamentally changing much until 200 years ago. And then it gets reduced quite a bit. And you can do another thing you can do with robustness studies is you can take, you know, one food web and like in the earlier state of the Adriatic Sea and show this is how robust it is to, you know, sequential extinctions. And then you can do that same thing for the reduced web of the present day. And you can show there's a huge reduction in robustness and potential robustness of the two systems. And Justin Yackel's work in uh, the Egyptian system also kind of looked at this contraction of a food web, or in his case, a piece of a food web. So the, the, the medium and large bodied mammals, the carnivores and herbivores of ancient Egypt um, over, you know, the last, you know, 13,000 years since the late Pleistocene. And there you have a huge contraction of that piece of the food web. Just like in the Adriatic Sea, you have a significant contraction of the whole food web. Yeah. I just want to suggest that you go into a little bit about the methodology of that one. Because I will. that's super fascinating. Yes, it is yeah. really cool. And I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But, I mean, the, um, the kind of punchline, and then I'll go back to the Egyptian study because it is super cool, is that they did a different kind of analysis on their, their contracting food webs through time. They did what's called a stability analysis. So we did this robustness analysis on our contracting food web. They did a stability analysis um, on their contracting food web. We both came up with the same answer, basically, which is like, as you contract these food webs and you impoverish them, they become less and less stable and resilient and robust to further change. Not a huge surprise, but important to show. So the Egyptian study, I wish I had been involved in that study. <laughs> But Justin the Yackel, former SFI postdoc, who's now a professor at UC Merced, and he and I wrote um, a, a less technical kind of review of, of old food web research. Um, 
excuse me. But, we'll um, link to that in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good thing for people to take a look at. It's um, uh, it's a nice review. It's already kind of out of date. You know, things are moving so quickly. But everything that's in it is accurate up until a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Justin uh, led this study of a piece of a food web of ancient Egypt. So, I mean, he looked at Egypt through the ages since the late Pleistocene. Uh, through, you know, kind of the classic ancient Egypt, uh, the time of the pyramids and everything else up until the present day. And so, you know, what they did, which is really hard to do um, across that 13,000 year period, and I forget how many time slices, but quite a few, they were able to um, reconstruct this piece of the food web with high fidelity. So the mammal predators and the mammal herbivores that they fed on. And so at the at the end of the late Pleistocene, before you know humans were on the scene, but they were kind of hunt, low level hunter gatherers, they weren't having a huge impact yet or developing everything. I think there were like thirty eight species in that little teeny piece of a food web, and you see the snapshots through time, and it gets it contracts and contracts and contracts until you only have eight species left in today's food web. I mean, just a massive contraction. But how did they create these snapshots of the food web? Well, um, over the course of ancient Egypt, there's a ton of art, um, a lot of it funerary art, but a variety of different, not just funerary art, but a lot of it was, some of it was like makeup palettes and other things. They just did a lot of artwork and they depicted a lot of the animals that were present during that, whatever particular period of time was on the artwork. So there's this um, Hieronkopolis palette, which depicts a bunch of these, you know, mammals, both predators and prey. It also has some, you know, fantastic animals that, you know, aren't actual real animals. The um, snake-necked jaguar. Right, yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you don't include those in the food web, but but most of the animals <laughs> we know existed from other records also. And um and and so they were able to pull all of this interesting archaeological data off of this artwork um, at different points in time. And and basically what you're seeing is fewer and fewer species represented in the artwork over thousands of years because a lot of them just went extinct um, for various reasons. You know, climate change is happening. There was a wet period for several thousand years after the late Pleistocene, but then it went into a very dry period. And there were the three desertification events and you can actually see like a predator prey ratios through time for these little food webs change significantly in idiosyncratic ways at the at the points at which you get super droughts. You have preferential um, extinction of the herbivores um, over time that you can see this in the change in the predator prey ratio over time. And then they also, like I said, they um, they did the stability analysis for you know, the food webs in each of the different time slices showing that they were becoming less and less stable through time. And now you've ended up with this incredibly impoverished food web that's really at risk for even further reduction. Mm. Yeah, you know, listening to this, you, you mentioned earlier that there's this this possibility of a negative correlation in the richness of cosmology and the the richness of the ecology right and you know again you know I, I wonder i've read somewhere someone making the argument that as we lose species of living organisms that there is an extended notion of the species the way that we might think of like a species of mineral and that the anthropocene is defined 
by an unprecedented proliferation in the kinds of things on our planet. You know, in the number of new mineral species, the number of new configurations of matter, you know, that we're, we're going through what in one sense is a sixth mass extinction, and in another sense would appear to be a, an enormous evolutionary radiation, but one that requires us to expand our definition of what qualifies in that, in that picture, right? So if we can just look at this somewhat less cynically than we are used to, the question opens up into the applicability of these trophic network models to a study, again, to, you know, to evoke Brian Arthur in this and, you know, Kevin Kelly and other people that have written meaningful, interesting works about technology as a form of life. Do you think that we can use these trophic network models to predict economic and technological niches? And that do, do you think that we may be able to use this to guide? I mean, I hate thinking about like robot pollinator bees. Like that's just such an uh, such a horrible scenario <laughs> tech, to tech, contemplate. Tech, techno bees. Yeah, but do you think that we are sort of being driven? into, you know, a, a thermodynamic outcome here and that, and that we can use this in a predictive way, not just to look back and understand this deep generality, but to look forward and actually anticipate and move into positions that we can then use to, you know, proactively keep these networks in place and, and allow them to continue to <laughs> proliferate. <laughs> I mean, what a mess, but feel free to like jump off into the speculation here. No, I, uh, as a, as a good scientist, I don't love speculating in really giant ways. So, uh, I like to stay closer to home. <laughs> I mean, one of the, some of the things that, you know, we want to do with the archaeoecology project and thinking about human use networks and, you know, this is a very early stage project, but we, we are doing it with the notion of thinking about sustainability of socio-ecological environmental systems in mind. And whenever I talk about this stuff, I usually get asked, you know, can we do this for modern systems? Would it be useful? What would it tell us? You know, and yeah, ultimately, certainly I would like to pull it up into thinking about using it as a different lens or a different framework for thinking about how humans interact with their ecosystems and environments in the modern world and using it to think, I mean, you know, even like the, the ideas of food deserts or, you know, people who have access to really a rich diversity of foods and, and the impoverishment of biodiversity by agriculture, you know, because they only pick one particular species out of, you know, one type of potato when there's like a hundred of them, you know, in Peru, which I got to see, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of also thinking about like the relationship between technology and innovation and resources of different kinds. I mean, I'm, I'm coming at it through this biodiversity ecosystem lens. That's not to say you couldn't apply it to non-biotic resources. And we've talked a little bit about how to incorporate, you know, non-biotic resources into how we characterize these networks. We're trying to get this right for simple systems first. I mean, I think in terms of like one of the things that we can ask of the prior systems then used to think about some of the questions you brought up for current and future systems is like, what is the possible landscape of ways that people could create technologies or interact with other species 
given the kind of opportunities they had in any given system and what made them explore or exploit a large part of that landscape versus only exploit or explore a small piece of it. And if they're only exploiting or exploring, you know, a fairly small piece of it, you know, why? And what would it mean to like look beyond that? And so, yeah, I think there, there could be, you know, some kernels in the kind of thing that we're doing. If you try to think of like the whole space of, of ways to put together different resources to, to create new technologies. Of course, you know, this is, you know, I'm not a huge techno optimist. I mean, humans are very good at creating technologies. We're very bad at understanding the outcomes and the negative repercussions of our technologies. Um, we've proven that time and time again. And I think we'll continue proving that, <laughs> you know, but I think that's also where a network perspective can be very handy. It's like, okay, as you develop this technology, let's try to really embed it within the net, the, the socio-ecological environmental network and try to understand what the ramifications are. Humans are all too good at thinking like, oh, I'm going to make this better for humans by introducing this thing. And, you know, I mean, we have a long history of introducing species, both intentionally and unintentionally. Our intentional introductions often go badly awry. <laughs> Cane toads and beavers. I mean, yeah, and uh, I mean, beavers are great ecosystem engineers. You know, I mean, they've completely transformed parts of South America. Yeah, bizarre. Absolutely, like, yeah. Uh, but you know, they also have their indigenous habitat where they create, they enhance hugely the, the biodiversity of many montane systems. You know, but yeah, you know, introducing like fur-bearing animals into some place where they didn't used to exist and ones that happen to be really fabulous ecosystem engineers the way that humans are, you know, yeah, that's going to cause problems. Well, here's a sort of more focused or specific question when it gets into the application or the translation of this science into street-level human activity, mm -hmm. which is, it seems like you could use this as a lens to identify where there is a missing company in a particular economic system mm -hmm. that, you know, you can say, oh, you know, that these people in this particular region are underserved, you know, through some missing piece of, of infrastructure. Right. And that, you know, that, um, that there's a sort of deep biomimicry that we could use to, yeah. to start identifying how we've allowed this more piecemeal approach to technological innovation to bring things out of balance and how we could bring them back into balance. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think many things are possible. Yeah. But I mean, I, I always, you know, kind of come back to the, you know, sort of why I got into food webs in the first place, which is wanting to grapple with the whole system, but wanting to grapple with it in a quantitative, you know, kind of, you know, simplified but quantitative way. Humans are very good being reductionist and looking at little pieces of things and really kind of drilling down into that little piece. I mean, it's, it underlies a lot of our huge successes of physics and associated engineering in the 20th century. That's great to a point, but that can also end up leading you astray. And we see this time and again, you know, in an ecological context. And so, you know, for me, yeah, it's always that, what is the whole system and what piece of it are you occupying and why? And if you want to alter it, you know, by taking something out or putting something in, you know, what are the likely implications of that given a whole system look versus like this little teeny piecemeal look. And that sounds all very ethereal, but I'll give one ecological example. Uh, there was a, an eminent theoretical ecologist named Peter Yotzis who died of ALS a few years ago. 
Um, he did some really cool food web modeling to kind of get at this point where, so there's a number of systems where human fishers feel that they compete with seals or sea lions for fish. And this still happens in various places around the world where there's a big cry to extirpate or exterminate the seals or sea lions because, hey, they're eating our fish. And so if you think about it from a food web perspective, here's humans are one node. Seals or sea lions are another node. They both have links to some fish species of interest to both. (laughs) And so like and so that's like the simplest possible local little look at like a little piece of a food web. And so human thinking goes or, oh, we just get rid of the seal or the sea lion from this thing. And all of a sudden, like that allows the population of the fish to grow because one of their predators is gone. So they grow and then humans get more fish. Yay. (laughs) Great. (laughs) However, (laughs) Peter Yotzes took this thing on and he basically said, let's put this into a food web. And he did this actually for a a fishery called the Benguela fishery off of South Africa. And um, so he took real data and he did some dynamical modeling, some fairly simple dynamical modeling. And he did this thing where basically he didn't include humans explicitly, but he had a little food web and um, seals or in that case, sea lions were a part of it. So in these little toy models and simulations, he would, you know, pull pull those out completely, or he would do a press perturbation where he would reduce the numbers of the of the sea lions, and then he would run the dynamics, population dynamics on this network, this food web network, and there were like three different fish species that the sea lions fed on that were also of interest to humans that humans want more of. Pull the sea lions out, or drastically reduce their numbers, and. You know, about, and this is a probabilistic study, um, uh, about half the time, those fish species, their populations would increase. But guess what? Half the time, they went down Mm -hmm. because of all the indirect interactions, because it's not just the sea lions and the fish and the humans. There's all of these other players, and there's all these other pathways and all these loops and all these indirect effects. And because of all of that complexity in the network, it was definitely not a sure thing that removing this other predator that is a competitor to humans was going to actually have the effect that humans want. And a lot of the times it actually screws it up for humans and gives Mm. them fewer fish. So that to me is just, he wrote a series of papers a while back where he kind of looked at this issue. And I think it was very illuminating and really important. That is interesting. So I'd like to wrap this up. You've given me an enormous amount of your time. <laughs> I appreciate and sure, it. You've got a lot of material you're going to have to weed through. Yeah, it'll be fine. I'd like to tie a bow on this by starting with a right angle, right? Is how you have to tie a bow. And I guess the question is, you've got two kinds of people listening to this show. Mm-hmm. And some of them are science track and some of them aren't. Mm-hmm. So what do you imagine to be the takeaway for people who are not pursuing scientific research like what do you hope that people carry out of this yeah i mean i i think what i hope people carry out of this is that that we can use these approaches these scientific approaches drawn from ecology and physics and archaeology and um that it's really important and really useful to study humans as a part of their ecosystems and that, and that we're just starting to really dive into 
you know, a lot of detail about the variety of ways that humans are interacting with other species and, and how they're using technology to access resources and, and what that means for their interactions with other species. And that is going to give us, we're hoping, and what we're starting to see is that that's providing us a new way to think about sustainability of coupled natural human systems. It, it really underlines how important it is to realize that human systems are not separate from environmental systems, are not separate from ecological systems, and that we gain a lot by studying them in an integrated, transdisciplinary way. The other thing just to underline is that, you know, we hear too often the doom and gloom of humans are having negative impacts on the world in different kinds of ways and at different scales. And that's certainly going on, but we also have very beautiful examples of humans as just kind of fitting into, and in, and, and in some cases, being really critical towards the kind of diversity and stabilization of ecosystems. And there's very interesting things, we lessons we can learn from that, that can hopefully help us to like think about current sustainability and future sustainability. Awesome. The last question I have for you is a little bit more personal. Okay. I mean, we've heard in this your story of being a kid playing in the creek to right. being the VP for science at SFI. <laughs> right. And so you have an excellent position from which you can advise or counsel young people who are interested in pursuing a career in science. What advice would you give someone in 2019 yeah. who is interested in pursuing this, this life path? So I actually want to speak to the kids who think they're not interested okay. in pursuing a career in science, because that's what I was, actually. I mean, although I had my roots in, you know, being a little kid naturalist and whatever, you know, I thought ultimately I didn't want to be a scientist. I mean, I think the, the kids who want to be scientists will find ways to be scientists, um, which is great. To them, I would say... Avoid the silos, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the future of science, and I think the most interesting and important questions are really, you know, at the crossroads of traditional disciplines. And the fun part of science is working with people who have expertise that's totally different from yours. I mean, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist at some point. I wanted to be a paleobiologist at some point. I didn't become those things, but now I grew up and I play with those people. I work with those people. I play with those people. So that's for the kids who already think they're on a science track, which is great. For the kids who aren't, who think they aren't on a science track, or the people who think they aren't on a science track, I would say science is way more fun and cool than you can even imagine. And <laughs> it's a living, breathing kind of creating new understanding and, and forging new frontiers at its best. And it's a place where you can be incredibly curious and incredibly creative, I think a lot of people who aren't scientists don't understand how creative science is and how delightful that is. And, you know, it's a community and we're building, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants and, you know, and also we're standing on the shoulders of midgets. And <laughs> most of us are midgets, but that's okay because a lot of midgets makes you a giant. Right. Well, you, it's, it's like an 80-20 giants, midgets, <laughs> right. kind of, oh, the other way. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would, you know, I would really, I think, um, unfortunately, because of misperceptions about what science is and how it operates and what it does, misperceptions I had for a long time. There's a lot of people who turn away from science who actually could have a lot to contribute to science, especially because they have a different brain set, you know, than someone who just comes up thinking I'm going to be a scientist or a mathematician and, um, and who misses, you know, I think interesting opportunities to be creative and to, to contribute in very important ways uh, to the world and do so in something that, in a way that's very fulfilling personally. 
So you maybe there's a the capstone on this is that the meta is that there is a trophic network of knowledge yes. that requires, you know, some measure of super generalists and a lot of specialists, and there's room in the scientific program for everyone. Yes, I think that's a, a really good way to use that metaphor drawn off of my and others' food web research. But yeah, there there are many different, there's room for many different minds and many different kinds of intelligence and many different kinds of creativity in science. Awesome. Well, this has Great. been a super inspiring conversation. Great. Thank Jennifer, you. Thanks that was fun. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.